This is session 11 in our series of Battling Unbelief, and our focus is on the the unbelief of despondency this time. And I know despondency is not a common word today, but it I don't want to use the word depression because it has clinical overtones and and is a is a and can be a real uh, physical physiologically based uh, problem, and and I don't mean mere uh, temporary discouragement that lasts for a few minutes. I mean there are real serious seasons of feeling very down and discouraged that are not not uh, at the level of a full-blown depression and yet much more serious than mere temporary discouragement. So that's what I'm talking about. When, when this settles in and we give way to it, it's because of a root of unbelief. And I don't mean to deny that there aren't uh, physical things for this, lack of sleep and lack of exercise and uh, failing to take care of yourself and having a certain kind of parenting behind you and genetic makeup, everything. We're very holistic people, so I don't mean to imply a simplistic notion here. All those are feeding into this, but at root, if we give way to all those things, there is a root of unbelief. And I want to figure out how to battle that unbelief and kill this sin. So, Father, you know how complex these things are and how diverse your people are who are, are watching this. I pray that they will gain uh, weapons in their arsenal for defeating this kind of settled despondency that is a bad uh, illustration to unbelievers of what you're capable of. We want to show that you can triumph over this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This text has been probably more powerful in my ongoing battle than most others, at least. My tears have been my food all day. This is a person who's, who's entered into a season of serious despondency while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So he's being mocked. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go so he's remembering something, how, I, how would, I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. He's remembering how this was. And now it's not true temporarily. A multitude keeping festival. And then he preaches to himself. This is the key. Preach to yourself. He, he says, soul, why are you downcast? Do you have a real adequate reason for being downcast? Oh, my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? No, there's not an adequate reason. I resist you. Hope in God, soul, for I shall again. Now he's looking. He's drawing lessons from the past to what will happen in the future. I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. So he doesn't know exactly how long his tears are going to have to be his food, but he will not settle in for this. And that's what I'm after. I'm after battling a settling in 
with a, a, a misery, an emotional misery of the absence of God and discouragement with life. And he's preaching to himself here. And that's what I want us to do. Why are you downcast? Don't be downcast, oh my soul. Why are you in turmoil? Don't be in turmoil. Rather, hope in God. God, God is your portion. I will again. Yes, God will come. I will again praise him. So that's the way we do it. We preach to ourselves. This text has also been really precious over the years. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. So he's he's hoping in everlasting life after death. Whom have I in heaven but you? You are my portion. There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. At least in comparison with you, there's nothing worth desiring. I think that's probably the safest way to take that. My flesh and my heart may fail. And that's important to say that there are physical dimensions to this and there are spiritual dimensions, emotional dimensions to this, and they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So same argument as chapter 42 of Psalms. God, I will again praise him. God is my portion. God is the strength of my heart. God is the portion of my flesh and my soul forever and ever. This is the way we preach to ourselves, reminding ourselves that though we are very frail and finite, God is strength and God is portion. This is a beautiful tactic for how to battle despondency when you actually walk into the darkness. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me. So that's, that's pretty serious despondency. Darkness is covering me. Here it comes. Cloud is coming. Light will be night. Even darkness is not dark to you. Night is bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. So he's saying, yes, I may enter into some kind of temporary darkness and discouragement and despondency, but he takes that truth and doesn't let it have the last word. This has the last word. Darkness is not dark to God. Night is bright as the day to God. Darkness is as light with you. He preaches this to himself, even while he sits temporarily in darkness. Now, here's something amazing. Let's go to Jesus and see what happened with him. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, disturbed, on the brink of despondency. And the reason I pause here is because I'm going to look here in chapter 14, where he says to his disciples in 14:1, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled. And here it says, my soul is troubled. <laughs> Same word in Greek, it is. There's no, no uh, vocabulary difficulty here. I think this is Jesus tasting despondency, not of a sinful kind. He didn't sin. What, what's up and how does he handle it? Here's what's going on. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
So he tastes on the horizon the horrible hour of his death and his his temporary separation from God, and it is shaking him. But for this purpose, I have come into this world. So he's, he's pondering, should I try to escape this? Should I say, save me from this hour? And then he says, no, this is the very reason I have come. So Father, help me now. Glorify your name. Don't let me fail in my mission. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. So Jesus is strengthening himself on the front end of this trouble by the promise that God is going to finish his work and be glorified in this mission. And when you get over here to chapter 14 and he tells them, don't be troubled, don't be troubled. He argues that they should have the same kind of faith in God that he does. Believe in God. So belief is the answer to this despondent trouble. Believe in God. Believe in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. I'm not leaving you orphans. That where I am, there you may be also. So the way he handles his trouble for them is to tell them to believe and trust him. And then he gives them what to believe. So I'm arguing that belief or faith in the promises of God is the antidote to a troubledness that settles into a sinful despondency. One last glance at, Je- glance at Jesus here in Matthew 26. He's in Gethsemane. This is the night before he was crucified. This is, the, this is one of the worst hours of his life. Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is, this is a deep taste of despondency. Now, what will he do? Is he going to cave in and live in despondency, be paralyzed by despondency? Will he let it go to the point of sinful despondency? We know he was sinless. This sorrow and this trouble is not sin. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, Remain here and watch with me. Now, I'm going to make a big jump here and go straight to a text that I think answers, how did he handle this? How did he, how did he escape from the deadly, paralyzing, sin-producing effects of sorrow and trouble in the face of his obedience that he was called to do? And I'm jumping over to Hebrews 12, 2. I choose green because this is just so life-giving for me. Let's all look to Jesus. He's telling his readers, look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of your faith. And here's how he did it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's how he made it. Despising the shame And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Gethsemane, Jesus looked to the joy that was set before him. And that joy strengthened him to endure the cross and despise the same. So so when we walk into a situation that's heavy, it's heavy on our hearts. 
And we don't want to be sinful in that moment and embrace despondency and discouragement as a, as a way of life or as any way paralyzing to keep us from obedience. What do we do? We look to the promise of joy. And here's, here's a, one more text. In the previous chapter of Hebrews, faith was defined like this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The substance of things hoped for. So, he looked to the joy set before him. He was hoping, I'm going to have an incredible reward on the other side as I sit down at the right hand of God. And faith brings the substance of this joy back into the present. And he's able to endure the cross and despise the shame because his faith in this future joy is giving him enough of a taste of the substance of that joy now that it gives the strength to endure. So I conclude. We kill the sin of despondency. And yes, it will become sinful if we let it conquer us, paralyze us, become a way of life for us. We kill the sin of despondency by believing God's promises that God, didn't mean to double that up, that God will be the light in our darkness from Psalm 139 and will bring us out in due time. The joy is set before us. That is, we kill the sin of despondency by being satisfied with all that God promises to be for us through Jesus Christ. He promises to be the strength of our heart and our portion forever. This is the great battle to be satisfied in God and all he promises to be for us.